Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Human Monsters. In 1983, Laura Parsons became a victim of human monsters in Dallas, Texas. She was abducted, raped, and shot by three men who left her for dead. She tells her story of the impact on her health, her relationships, and her ability to overcome trauma. She is a courageous woman, and her story deserves to be heard. So the first thing I'm going to ask is that uh, the ordeal you experienced occurred in a trip you took to the States. And I was wondering, um, what, what was the purpose of the trip? Was it a vacation or was it a business trip? No, I was a resident. Oh, you were living there. Okay. And where, where was this again? Um, well, it happened in Oak Lawn, Dallas, Texas, and I lived in University Park. So University Park is a gated community. Um, its mothership is Highland Park, and um, it's an all-white community, and if you have um, maids or, or your groundskeepers or whatever there, they are allowed to be there during daylight hours only, and uh, once prior to dusk, they all have to leave. Unfortunately, beside Highland Park and University Park is Oak Lawn, and that is multiracial. Anybody can come and go. The restaurant that I was going to that evening with a group of friends um, was basically something out of Yorkville. Very, very shishi. But where I was dumped was not. Oh, okay. So that's... Still in Oak, still in Oak Lawn, just that once they abducted me, 
we traveled around. I don't know where. Well, I couldn't see out. So the area where you were abducted, that's that's a high crime area? No, it's a it's like the Ritz is there and the Fairmont. I mean, it's, it's extremely ritzy-titsy. Hmm. Okay. And they were hiding behind trees as I was parking my car in their in in the parking lot, which I later found out the restaurant that I was going to, the um, staff members are escorted by a security guard with a gun on him to their cars when they leave after their shifts. But as a resident, you don't know that. You just know it's a nice restaurant. And it was actually owned by um, the Six Flags over uh, Texas, his son. So were there a lot of these attacks in that area around that time, a lot of women being targeted? Um, not really, no. The only other attack I knew about was across the um, road from my husband's office, also in Oak Lawn. And she had a gorgeous um, furrier shop. And she was taking some fur coats to her car. And she was, this, well, not the same thing happened. Obviously, it was robbery, but they left her to die in the parking lot. But she survived. And uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you back to um, the moment when you were abducted. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you how they approached it. Um, did you know immediately you were in danger, or was it a matter of just kind of sensing it, or did they ambush you? They ambushed me. I was getting out of my car, right, like it's 1983, so you have to put your key in your lock to lock it. I was doing that, and I turned around, and these two men were approaching me, and they were yielding a gun. And they took you to another and, location? And then they had me unlock the car. Okay. The one guy, Marion Sales, um, he was the driver. The other one, Frederick Anderson, he threw me into the floorboards of the front seat. They turned up the heat, so I was absolutely baking. And then they started to molest me. And was there a lot of um, physical violence as well? Like besides being pushed and thrown into the car, were, were, were you struck? Were you kicked at? Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, I had a gun to my neck the entire time. Um, and they never let up. If anything, if I didn't answer the questions the way they wanted me to answer them, they would shove it further into my neck. Um, they were very forceful. They were very, very abusive. Um, at one point they couldn't understand my driver's license because obviously they have the IQ of a four-year-old and I'm not being facetious. I'm not being judgmental. Sure, yeah. This is what, this is what was said in the courts. Like they, they hadn't even finished like grade three or grade four. Um, so they they were habitual, they are habitual criminals. But, um, so if, so Toronto, Canada meant nothing to them. Absolutely nothing. And where are you from, you white fucking cunt of a bitch? And that kind of language was being thrown around. At the same time that they were, at the same time they were physically assaulting me. 
Yeah, it sounds almost like it was personal. Like, they seemed to be angry at you, did they? I think they're just angry at women in general. I don't think it's, it's not an isolated incident. Um, that's just like, I'm white, they're black. I mean, look what's going on in the world today, Morgan. Yeah, could be a class issue as well, yeah. So, you know, um, it, it, uh, it, it's, it's one of those things that you really don't know where these men are coming from and are they really men? Like, I, I, I view them as being like lions and they're just attacking for the sake of attacking. Right. And the one thing, there's, there's people talk about the fight or flight response, but uh, when someone's a victim of, of an incident like this, there's actually a third response that can kick in as well. So there's fight and flight, and there's freeze. So which one did you experience? Was it just raw fear, or were you planning on or trying to find a way to get out, or was, were you just paralyzed in a sense and you know didn't know what to do? I experienced all three, quite frankly. I tried desperately to free myself, which I was unable to do. Um, I had an SUV at the time, so once they abducted me and we got to, I don't know where, but anyway, we got somewhere and they threw me in the back of the SUV. They didn't know how to put the seats down, so I had to show them. And um, so I was taught in high school that if anything like this were to happen to you, you just go along with them. You don't try and fight, which I just became complacent because I was so fearful of my life and being raped at gunpoint. Like uh, what, what else do you do? Like you can't do anything. And it's two men against one woman. And I probably, you know, I weigh 98 pounds. So it's not like I can take them down myself. And I wasn't about to wrestle a gun out of their hand. I was just trying to survive. So and quite frankly, I don't know if you're religious or not, but the first thing when they shoved me under the floorboard and put the balaclava over my head, the first thing I did was say the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, whatever you want to call it. And I swear that's one of the reasons why I'm still here today, because... I was gifted from the Lord to be alive. So, and then what happened? Did they take you to another location? Um, we went to several locations, all of which I don't know where I was. At one point, we were on a highway. The only reason why I know we were on a highway was because of the distance, like of, of the um, speed of the car. And, um, and at one point, uh, they slowed the vehicle down, and Frederick Anderson, he tried to throw me out, and both of my knees hit a cement column that you would have down a highway. But then he pulled me back in, and then he did it again, and he did it again, and then finally the driver said, okay, enough is enough. Frederick Anderson was probably the most brutal of the two. And as a result, I had to have orthoscopic surgery on my right knee. Are, are your knees okay now? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I have other issues. I have internal issues. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Because of the way the bullet went through my body. 
And because uh, it entered my left hip and um, never exited. So when I was having the um, 15 hours of surgery and um, 21 units of blood, they removed the bullet then. And then that became evidence. So your hip gives you trouble now? No, my hip doesn't. It's all internal. It's all, I have diabetes because the bullet hit my pancreas. Oh my God. Um, and this, uh, once again, by the grace of God, although my um, right fallopian tube was ligated and my right ovary was obliterated, I was able to conceive my son um, 10 years later, almost to the day. Wow, that's great. And they told me, they, they told me I would never have children. And there were, were there any complications with the pregnancy? Oh, definitely, yes. I had placenta previa, so I wasn't allowed to um, give birth vaginally. I had to have a, uh, a C-section. And that was fine. We were all good after that. And then as the years have gone on and I've gotten older, I have, you know, medical issues because... The way the bullet traveled, although it ligated my fallopian tube and obliterated the ovary, it also put four holes in my lower intestine. So when I woke up finally in ICU, um, I had a colostomy, which I had to sign for in eMERGE. Didn't really know what a colostomy was, signed for it anyway. And um, yeah, so I had to maintain a colostomy uh, for two and a half months, and um, and then they reversed it. But I was taken to Parkland Memorial, where they took JFK. Mm -hmm. And at that stage in the game, that was um, the best trauma hospital in Texas. And uh, when you were sexually assaulted, they took you to a field to do it, I understand. Um, no, oh, no, it was oh. done in the back of my SUV. Oh, although that all happened in the SUV. Oh, okay. No, I ran into a field to escape them. Oh, that's where you escaped. Once, oh, okay. Yeah, once they let me out of the SUV, then um, I just I was barefoot because they took my shoes off, and it was all gravel, and I just thought I'm just going to run for it, and that's when I took off, and. I didn't, it was obviously dark, it was late. Um, they abducted me at like 6.30, quarter to seven, and I guess maybe I made it to Parkland around one in the morning. I'm not quite certain, obviously. I wasn't looking at my watch. But um, so when I took off and ran through the gravel into this field, I came across a barbed wire fence, which I couldn't see. I flipped over it and and um, laid on my right side in the fetal position, hoping that they would think I was dead. And that's when I heard the gun go off. So that is that's when you got shot? Yeah. So they, they thought, okay, well, we'll finish her off, and then that'll be it, and we'll never get caught. <laughs> right. And they discussed drowning me, but I told them that I was an Olympic swimmer, and it would never, I would never drown. <laughs> Well, and I was just, like, making this stuff up as I went along, right? Sure, yeah. And, and because I had a Toronto license, um, the address was in Toronto, not in Dallas, 
And um, so they said, take us back to your home. I said, oh, well, I'm staying at the mansion on Turtle Creek, which if you Google it, is like the most posh place on the planet. And um, it's owned by the Hunt family. And um, I've stayed there in the past, but obviously I was living in our home. But I just thought, I'll just try that. And I said, and we can call my husband and um, he can get you some money, which, of course, wasn't going to happen. But I was just thinking, okay, the mansion has valet parking. I don't think they see very many SUVs. They probably see more Mercedes than Beamers. But anyway, I thought, hey, this could be the place for me to escape, but they didn't fall for it. Yeah, was was the sexual assault itself, was that physically damaging too? Yes, yeah. Yeah, they were not the least bit compassionate, <laughs> to say the least. It was, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty rough. And at one point, um, Frederick had his penis in me, and Marion had me mousing his penis simultaneously. Oh, my God. So, uh, Not something I w wish on anybody. And so how long did it take you to completely recover from all the physical injuries? Well, I still haven't. Yeah, I'm still having colonoscopies. I'm on special medication. Um, my um, red cell count is very, very low due to stress and um, post-traumatic stress. Um, so, yeah, so um, they've given me um, multiple medications, not just for my internal issues, but also for my mental issues. But I don't like walking around stoned. Sure, of course not. Yeah, it's hard to be you, functional. You, you, don't, you don't get much done. No, that's right, yeah. <laughs> you, you, TSDs, I have meds, oh, but I've got taking them. Yeah, I know it's a problem. Medical science still hasn't come up with a way to manage pain without making you stoned or addicted. Exactly. It, or even sleep, like I'm sleep deprived. Yeah, I, I, no doubt. The worst part of the day for me is like six thirty, seven o'clock, because that's when it happened. And, well, not right now, but in the fall and the winter, that's when it gets dark, and that kind of freaks me out. Sure. So I I don't go anywhere after dark. How often do you get flashbacks of the incident? Daily. One thing to trigger it. Yeah, do you have nightmares as well about it? Oh, most definitely. I'm always running away from a gun. And I try to fly because I'm hoping that that will help. Obviously, this is all in my dream. But this whole George Floyd thing has just sparked, you know, so many issues in my psyche. It, it's reversed. I realize that. But still, I have, I do have issues. You know, I, I'm afraid, basically. Has it uh, affected the way that, and I'm not accusing you of being a racist, but has it affected the way you feel about, you know, black men? Is it okay if I say yes? Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just being honest, Morgan. Yeah, um, when I moved back to Canada, I had a Crabtree and Evelyn store, 
in square one. And I think one of my first or second customers was a black guy. And I absolutely freaked out. Like I just had no composure. I was just shaking and I had to go into the staff room and have somebody else take care of him. And, and, you know, it's not his fault. Yeah. And it's really not mine either. It's just that that's, that that fear and that inability to um, take care of yourself just all came flooding back. Sure. Like I was, I was out of, I was, I had no control over anything for those hours and hours or for the hours and hours in the hospital or after that. Yeah, PTSD is a condition that is triggered so easily by the senses and sort of, and it's very visual symbols that are connected to the crime triggered very easily. So this is definitely something that has affected your daily life. I don't know if you would go so far as to say it's ruined your life. Would you go that far? No, I'm too strong of a person for it to ruin my life. Um, but let's just say when the um, investigator from the DA's office came to take a DNA swab from me, I was an absolute basket case. I couldn't go anywhere after that meeting and um, was like in in a total state of shock that the wrong man had been incarcerated and that I had to go back and testify against the real criminals. So, I mean... That was 2012. Have I gotten better? Definitely. Do I rely on anybody? No. No, I don't. I don't I don't want to be on a couch and I don't want to be taking meds. So I just deal with it the way I feel I can deal with it. And everybody who knows me says I'm a very strong person. In, in court, you obviously had to uh, go through the entire incident in detail, and as as if that's not bad enough, the perpetrators are sitting right there just a few feet away from you. I can't imagine that was easy. No, that was extremely difficult, Morgan, but you know what? I stared him down. I thought, you know what? You're no, you're no longer my abductor. You're no longer anything in my life. That was a brief moment. Now I'm going to take you down. So the, he, Marion Sales, was, his um, trial was first. And they refused to try the two of them together because they figured they were in cahoots. And in fact, once their DNA was a match, they removed um, Frederick Anderson from that penitentiary and put him in another one so that they couldn't converse. And so then I went back to testify against Anderson and his lawyer um, came up with some convoluted story about him not being served properly. So I only spent like a day and a half in Dallas and then I flew back home because they were going to reserve Anderson. And so then I went back at the end of um, that month and then testified against him. And another way in which um, the victims are, are re-traumatized in court is that the defense attorney will try to discredit them. Was there a lot of that? Oh. Oh. I can't even begin to tell you how much the, they, they both spent on trying to discredit me. 
Like it was hours and hours and hours. And I was the liar and, and they, you know, they were innocent. And then at one point, one lawyer had me get down on the ground, like leave the witness box, get down on the ground and um, demonstrate how I was thrown in and out of the vehicle on the highway. And so my knees kept hitting the witness box. And then all of a sudden the judge, Susan Hawk, who was amazing, she said, you know what? Enough is enough. Leave Mary Smith alone. So I was able to get up and go back into the witness box, but he still berated me. Oh man! Like he was like he was not a nice guy at all. And it goes without saying, uh, you, you know, I'm sure your, your husband must have been devastated by what happened to you. So what what was his reaction? Uh, how was his behavior towards you? You know, I, I presume he was very supportive. <laughs> no, the exact opposite. Oh. Yeah, he blamed me. Wow. Yeah, and he was very upfront and, and very blatant about it, not only in front of me, but in front of my surgeon, the medical staff, and what have you. It, it, yeah, it was all my fault. Was there problems in and the marriage before that? No, 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 no. No, I just inconvenienced him is what I did. Because he was not even in the country when this happened to me. I was just going out for dinner with some friends. And, um, you know, I don't have to be picked up. I can just drive myself. And that was our plan. There were six of us. And um, I was the one who didn't make it inside. Wow. I mean and, uh, yeah, when he came once, uh, when, when he finally came to the hospital, because he didn't come right away, um, he just started berating me because I was covered in iodine at the time. And he said, what have you done to your skin? It looks ridiculous. Get that off. And I'm like, I can't even get out of bed, let alone worry about the color of my skin. And so it was just constant, 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 constant. And even at the first trial, he sat there um, in in the audience, and um, he was sitting right in front of the family of the two alleged criminals, and um, they were laughing during my testimony. And he proceeds to tell me that well, I, I don't need to hear that. It sounds like he was uh, either narcissistic or sociopathic, or maybe both. <laughs> He's definitely both. Trust me. I haven't seen him since the birth of our son. And once again, I inconvenienced him. They told me I'd never get pregnant, and then I did. And um, so my son is a miracle, but my husband at the time didn't see it that way. As he if, said that children were liabilities, not assets. So as if you hadn't been through one of the worst possible experiences a human can go through, you also had the husband from hell. Mm -hmm. I did. Yeah. So you can imagine after everything that I've been through, and obviously there's a whole lot of financial um, situations because I'm Canadian living in Dallas. Um, I wasn't there illegally, I have to say. I, I had a training visa, so I was working. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, your Blue Cross doesn't kick in when when the hospital wants your bills to be paid, and they were thousands and thousands of dollars. And I remember waking up um, in um, recovery, and my mouth was so dry. I was so dehydrated. So they had these lemon swabs. And he says to the nurse after I get my second or third one, because I can't drink anything, I can't chew on ice. And he says to her, how much do those cost? Oh, my God. And I'm thinking to myself, who cares? Yeah, right. Is really. there five cents or five bucks? He was he was not supportive at all during the whole ordeal. And the fact that I woke up with a colostomy, well, that was just totally devastating for him. Like, your entire abdomen is scarred. And I said, yeah, but I'm still alive. So, you know, which is it? Feast or famine? So are you able to, would you be able to go over to the United States now, like considering all that happened? Just maybe not Dallas so much, but... Dallas is a beautiful city. It has a lot to offer. It's very cultural um, and it's very beautiful. Uh, I was there in 2012 and 2013 and it's like just gone crazy with, you know, just all of the architect and... It's just, it's a phenomenal city to live in. Um, would I go back? Not alone, no. I would definitely have to have, you know, someone with me, not necessarily my son. And, um, but, like, why do you want to live in the state? I certainly don't want to live there. I've lived in various parts of the states, and quite frankly, they're all beautiful, and, you know, they're... They've got so much happening, which is which Barry doesn't, by the way. Yeah, really. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so yeah, with the situation the way it is and has been for years, like since Trump was voted in, I I have no desire to live there. Like my, my one of my best girlfriends, she lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. She's a She's a uh, forensic nurse, and um, she just she's from Toronto. Like she went to Sheridan College, but then back then they weren't hiring nurses in in Ontario, and so she just went across the border and she got married and she's been there ever since and she loves it. Um, I'll go live with her. Yeah. <laughs> Or I'll go to her beach home and live there, but I'm not about to um, just pick up and, and move somewhere in in the States. I would be fearful of my life right now Yeah, that, of all the rioting. Oh, yeah. Well, there's that, that safety issue as well. So you experience like the, you know, the, the dark side of uh, the masculine psyche, uh, rape, uh, physical assault, emotional assault, and then you had a, a husband who was emotionally abusive. Did this whole experience taint your feelings about men? No, not at all. No, I can say that, um, I, first of all, I don't consider them human beings, nor do I consider them men. I consider them cowards, and um, they hide behind their power, whether it be a black man toting a gun or my husband in a Harry Rosen suit. 
they all have this purpose in life and it's to be powerful and they'll get it in what way they can. So uh, I've been alone for a long time because there's just, uh, you know, there's nobody out there that I think once you hear, I think once a man hears my story, they just kind of retreat because I think they think that they've been violated because they know me or that they might want to fall in love with me and, you know, make love and what have you. I think that most men are not confident enough for me because I don't walk around saying, oh, well, with me, I have my quiet moments. I have my moments where it's just me and flashbacks and everything else. I don't, I don't express that to anyone. Like I don't wake up and call a girlfriend and say, I can't believe the dream I just had, or I can't believe the night I just had because I was so afraid because I heard a bang in the middle of the night. I just, you know, I just keep it to myself. And most men would not, I don't think they would be confident enough or strong enough to deal with what I've dealt with. Well, they can't even deal with the fact that a woman's not a virgin when they meet her, no matter how old she is. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, once you've had a child, you're no longer a virgin, Morgan. Yeah, right. So, so, uh, Whether it's a C-section or not. So if you did uh, enter into an intimate relationship with a man, does the PTSD connection to that incident, would that complicate the situation? Would you uh, get flashbacks while you were intimate? No, definitely not. Well, cool. I'm in the moment. I'm not, I'm not living in the past. When I'm, when I'm, if I were to be intimate, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't be living in the past, no. Because it was, it was such a brutal act of violence. It was a heinous crime. So hoping going forward, if and when I am intimate, I hope it's a compassionate, loving situation as opposed to what I experienced. So there's no correlation between the two. Oh, that's good then. And you, yeah. So you were with that husband for at least 10 years afterwards. He's the father of your child? Yes, yes. So, so how? what was it like to, to press on after all that happened, knowing the, how he reacted? Uh, how, how, how did you manage to, to live with him and, and have a functioning marriage again? Well, we continued to live in Dallas for another two years, and I just um, sucked it up, and I got a job at a Montessori school and taught there. And as long as I was bringing home money, there were no issues because that's his, like money is his Lord. And um, so there were no issues. And then once he was transferred back to Canada, um, I was able to get a job fairly quickly. And so as long as I was doing what he wanted me to do and following his goals, everything was fine. And everything was fine until I conceived David. And uh, in terms of your feelings about him, uh, did that 
that incident and his behavior, did that insert a wedge between you? Did you feel more like distant or less warm toward him? Yes, most definitely. There's, I haven't seen the man in almost 27 years, but because um, he left once he found out I was pregnant. Um, but yeah, no, there's. There, I can't really say that he was compassionate about my situation and he would just line me up with doctors or psychologists or psychiatrists and he was the one who, you know, I mean, he didn't feed me the drug, but he would tell the physician or, or whomever that I needed help emotionally. So he wasn't the type of person that could handle not being in control. He is the epitome of a control freak. And so you went to therapy. Uh, was that helpful? No. No, I, um, at the rape crisis center in Dallas, as I was telling my story, the, um, the gal that was doing the input interview um, started crying, and I wasn't. And I thought, well, this is really strange. She's the one who's supposed to be supporting me. I'm not supposed to be supporting her. And um, then um, my husband decided that we were going to sue the restaurant. So um, owned by the Wynn family, by the way. Um, I don't know if you know about the, the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas. It's quite spectacular. So um, anyway, once we started that ball rolling, then I, obviously the other side had me jumping through hoops and I had to go see a psychiatrist and I had to fill out this, I don't know, 500 page, I'm kidding, but anyway, you know, this long um, dissertation about how I feel and then three, day, three pages later, it asks you that same question. So, and then I was interviewed by him after he read that. And I finally read his report in 2012. And he said that I was, um, I was distancing myself from the situation. I wasn't grasping it. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, that's how I'm surviving. Yeah, sure. I'm distancing myself. I'm not in denial. I'm just stating a fact that, you know, you can't, you can't live with this monkey on your back for the rest of your life, yeah, of although you not. do, yeah. but you try to, try to keep it a tiny monkey, not a huge monkey. So did you, uh, per, perhaps with the um, use of the internet, uh, did you ever connect with other women who had been sexually assaulted, someone you could actually have a conversation with? Did that help? Or did you read books about it to try to just to, to feel less alone in terms of knowing that other people are going through the same thing? Well, I guess because my situation is unique. Um, my friends and my family really didn't believe initially, like they thought perhaps I had dreamt it until, of course, they saw me in the hospital. But nobody really grasped the concept in 
in Ontario, where my friends are, about how this could happen to someone. Like, this just doesn't happen in this day and age. Okay, so it was 1983. So what? Like, it happened. And um, so reaching out was not part of my um, therapy, my, my own personal therapy, although I have tried to reach out since the trials. And um, most people, women especially, because men also have been raped, but um, most women don't want to talk about it. Like they just want to just throw it in the back burner and leave it there and not discuss it. The only time I had any conversations with uh, women was when I was in the witness protection program and I was on a, a certain floor in the um, courthouse and and all of us women were testifying against perpetrators. Um, none of them had my story. They had their own stories, but um, a lot of them didn't stay for the trial. They were too afraid to. And so when I went back downstairs and and I was in the DA's office waiting to be called again, um, then I go back upstairs and these gals were gone and I had, you know, befriended everybody that worked there because I was being televised and, you know, it was huge, huge news. And um, I was, I said to the receptionist, well, where did Julie go and where did Barb go? She goes, oh, they left. I said, what do you mean? Oh, no, they couldn't handle it. Yeah, I'm sure. So not only, not only do they not want to converse with someone like myself, they also are way too afraid to testify. And that's part of the system, is that there's no protection once you leave the courthouse. Because so these guys, these guys that, they, that, that were their abductors or whatever, they'll just get a few years, like maybe five, maybe ten, they'll be out on parole. Um, the only reason why Sales and Anderson got um, first-degree capital murder attempt and life in sentence was, or life in jail was because they shot me. Right. Yeah. Had I had I died, they would have been executed. Again, like there was no DNA in 1983, so that's why the wrong men were incarcerated initially. Yeah, it took like 30 years to finally nail them, didn't it? It did. Yeah. Because um, the DA put forth through legislation that if there was no, because the jails are extremely overcrowded in, in Dallas, and there's not just one, there's many. And um, so to bring down the population, um, he decided that um, this was the way to go. And so if there was no DNA at the time of trial, then everybody got to um, give up their DNA. So, of course, everybody bellied up to the bar because, oh, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. And that's how Anderson and Sales were found. And the other two were exonerated because the whole jail. And at that time, Sales and Anderson were in the same penitentiary. So, you know, and Anderson didn't even know what DNA was. He just went along with everybody else. He didn't even call it DNA. He called it something else to his father on the phone. I'm going to have a a D a D A N N A test. 
because all of their conversations are recorded. Yeah, yeah. So, so my investigator, who was also my bodyguard, um, he told me about these phone calls, and actually he showed me some of the of the um, transcript. But um, it, it, it's a, it was just, um, it, in my opinion, it was just a fluke. Like, I thought they were gone for good. But no, no, we got the new guys. We got the right guys, finally. Well, you know, most criminals have double-digit IQs, so that doesn't surprise me about them. Yeah, no, they, I think when his father took the stand, I think he said he had a grade three education. Yeah, probably, yeah. That was Anderson. I don't know about sales. You were a white-collar professional at the time, were you? I was, yes. I was working in a law firm. Oh, I see. So you are an attorney? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. I'm <laughs> not even close. <laughs> so that's... No, I'm, I'm, I'm a creative person. I just, I, I just took the job that I could take in Dallas because I was being hounded to do so. Um, no, I've since coming back to Canada, I have been um, an event planner, floral designer, that kind of thing. And Weddings, bar mitzvahs, you know, whatever, whatever they need, I'll supply it. I, I, I would never go back into law. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I, I would imagine that that might be triggering because if there are cases about sexual assault or abuse of women, attempted murder, then that would be very hard to be that in, in that environment, right? Yes, and that's exactly what happened because I was in Dallas still. doesn't happen here that much. I mean, if it does, it's not, it's not reported or it's not televised. It's not like Dallas where, you know, you turn on the TV and it's just like ridiculous news, gun shootings and abductions and just, it's crazy. You have the right to bear arms in most American states. So they didn't have the right because they were criminals at the time, but anybody who is not a criminal has the right to bear arms. That's right, yeah. And once this happened to me, I had the right not that I would know what to do with it, but we did have a gun in our home after that. And so, you, and you never had a confidant you could turn to at all about this. Um, I had I had um one really close girlfriend, and yes, she was very very supportive. She actually came to my ho uh, my hotel my um, hospital room and repainted my toes and my fingernails and washed the iodine out of my hair. Um, and we're still friends to this day. In fact, I'm godmother of her youngest son. Um, and yeah, so she's been a great, great help. The friends that I had here in Barrie and or Toronto didn't really know about it because that had already happened and I moved back. And um, it wasn't until this all happened in 2012, did anybody ever realize what I actually had gone through? Because I didn't really sit down at a you know dinner party and start telling the tale. Because everybody is in shock. They're in disbelief. So my support group has um, 
risen. Um, but nonetheless, nobody really wants to hear about it because it's just, it's just so heinous. What was your, um, your family background like? Did you grow up in, in privilege? Was it like a middle-class neighborhood? Everyone's safe? Was it that sort of environment? Yeah, it was middle class. Yeah, my dad, my dad had an executive position, white collar, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom of five kids. I and went to good. Catholic school. Yeah. I went to um, Catholic high school, and um, you know, we just walked everywhere, and our friends were our neighbors. And so, coming from that background, you would have looked upon an incident like what happened to you as something that happens to other people in, in foreign lands furthest thing from your mind, I presume? Most definitely. I never, ever, I never, ever could even imagine this happening to someone and then it happened to me. And in that moment, I just thought, wow, this is really happening. I need to get my act together. I have to somehow outwit these two, which of course I couldn't, but at least they didn't drown me because I probably wouldn't be here today if they did. Um, in, in relationship with my family, I don't know if they even still get it. Like I'm talking about my siblings because they kind of just blow it off. Like, like, you know, oh, Laura, she's just trying to get sympathy or whatever. And I don't need anybody's sympathy, quite frankly. It'd just be nice to have support. So my siblings have not been supportive, um, at all. My parents, God rest them, um, were extremely supportive and always have been. To the point where my mom wanted to go to Dallas with me in 2012 because I, I was going alone and she thought, I, I should go with you. And I said, no, you should stay here and take care of dad because his health was failing. But um, once once I testified, then I went back to my hotel room and I called them and I gave them updates. But I didn't call my siblings. I didn't tell them anything. Seems I let like my mother do the talking. Seems like with sexual assault, the victim is always on trial. That's just it, yeah. And my one sister was very unkind and my mother told me about what she had said. And I thought, wow, you weren't even there. And that's what you, that's what you've come up with. You must, you must be a psychic. Wow. Yeah, like she commented about how many bullets there were and that my injuries weren't that um, substantial. Um, what else did she say? Um, oh, and that um, the surgery didn't take that long and she didn't need 21 units of blood. And I thought to myself, wow, now she's a trauma surgeon. Well, even a single gunshot on the hand is a, is a serious injury. I mean, you know. Yeah, and this one traveled from the left to the right, right through my abdominal area. Yeah, the damage so, was very extensive, yeah. Yeah. When, when I, the only reason why I know there's a barbed wire fence around where I ran to was because when I was crawling out of the ditch, I couldn't walk. My right leg was totally paralyzed. So I was literally crawling on my hands and knees and my dress got caught on the barbed wire. And that's the only reason why that I knew that that's what I tripped over or fell over. 
Yeah, so when you recall the events, I know one thing that tends to happen is that the, the memory, and I think this is a holdover from evolution, in order to just protect ourselves, sometimes we can black out to a certain extent, or the timeline can be thrown into disarray. So do you remember it just in flashes? Is that how it comes to you? No, I remember everything from start to finish. I can tell you the entire story like I'm sitting in the witness box testifying. Don't. There isn't one there isn't one thing I would leave out because it's just so ingrained into my memory. Like there's no escaping it. Doesn't matter how many drugs you have, there's no escaping it. Sometimes it gets worse when you're on the, the meds that they want to prescribe for you because it just heightens your awareness. It doesn't dull it. That's right. One thing I've heard from a lot of victims of this kind of crime and also other kinds of violence as well is that they often use the analogy of the, the, the proverbial phoenix rising from the ashes and they talk about milestones. And uh, what milestones have you reached in your recovery where you realized you were stronger or you would recover to an extent and you were better? Could you recall any events like that? I think the main event that made me the strongest person that I am today is the conception of my son and the birth of my son and raising my son as a single mom from conception till today. Um, I, he's given me the strength. He doesn't know it, but even in utero, he, he was, I was protecting that unborn child from anything, any walk of life. And that's where I've gotten my strength from and my faith has given me a lot of strength because I wonder why I'm here. Like, I should not be here. But as the prosecutor said to, to the jury, refusing to die. And that's, that's my whole mantra, is that every day is a gift. I wake up in the morning, I praise and thank our Lord that I'm here, that I'm somewhat healthy, and I can get through anything. What are your son's feelings and thoughts on what happened to you? He doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, that would be hard to talk it, about. Yeah. It, it, it bothers him. Yeah. Like when I had to go, he was in university when I had to go to trial in 2012. So he wasn't there when um, the DA and the head of the homicide department of the Berry Police came for my DNA because they weren't allowing this investigator to come to my home alone. He had to be escorted. He had to be, um, he had to go through Interpol. Like there was a whole bunch of things that he had to do in order to cross the border. And um, so my son wasn't at home at that time, but then um, it happened in January and he was home for a break and I was leaving. He's like, well, where are you going? And I told him. He already knew about it. But I told him, he goes, no, I don't, I, I can't, uh, I can't go there with you. I'm sorry, but it just breaks my heart. Yeah, that would be hard. He's a, he's a very compassionate child, son, man. Yeah. <laughs> All that rolled into one. What are his goals? What is, what is he going to university for? 
he um, graduated with a degree in business, which got him nowhere. So um, he went back to college and got a degree in web design and graphic design. And uh, so that's what he's doing now. Also, he's creative like you, eh? Yes, very much so. And his father, his father is a graduate of the business school in in Toronto, and you know, very much a financial wizard. But my son never took on those traits. I I, I started to write a book, yeah, but I didn't find it cathartic. I found it overwhelming. Oh, I see. Yeah, I can understand that. So. What I did find cathartic was when I took all of the transcripts and my medical records and I threw them in the dumpster. Yeah. I don't, if I needed them, which I don't need any of those records, but if I did, I could get them from Parkland. I could get them from the DA's office. But just having them in my space was causing I could just, I could feel that they were sucking the positive energy out of me every time I looked at that file because it's huge. It's, um, it's probably a foot and a half, two feet high because it was all done on paper back then. And then, and then the investigator brought my testimony, the original one, to me the day that he did my DNA. And, um, I just looked at it and I just tweaked, like I couldn't read it. He, he said, before the first trial, you have to read through. And I'm thinking to myself, why? I lived through it. Why do I have to read about it? Everyone was telling me I should write a book. Oh, you should write a book. And so I thought, okay, fine. So I started to write a book. And then I thought after page one or two, after the intro, I just, I just lost it. And I thought, no, this isn't for me. Yeah, it's too hard to go into all that kind of material. I don't, I don't watch violent shows at all, ever. There's a gun pulled out, I, you know, flip over to the next movie or whatever. Yeah, have you ever seen a movie or a TV show that featured an incident like what you would like, like what you experienced at all? And you know, was there that ever happened? Um. I would say yes, but I can't recall the title, but there have been movies similar, not quite the same, but obviously violence towards women, abduction. There's even a TV movie on now. I think it's called Found or I don't know. Somebody I know watched it and I thought, well, why are you telling me? So the daughter gets abducted. I think it's Liam Neeson. And the daughter gets abducted, and then he has to find her. And I'm thinking, why would I want to watch that? Yeah, you'd have to leave the theater or shut the TV off or whatever, right? Exactly. It's hard for you to talk about it and to go into any detail about it. So I appreciate you willing to do this because, and I, in the past, I have you know asked other people who have been sexually assaulted or something or any other kind of violent experience if they would do an interview. And many of them don't want to. So, I, yeah, I'm really grateful that, uh, that you've done this today. And I think uh, my audience will enjoy the story. And if any of them have experienced that sort of thing, it'll be cathartic for them to know that they're not alone. Yeah, no, we aren't alone. There's, 
it's, it's sad to say, but there's millions of us. And um, if I can just put an ending to this story, because of the injuries I sustained in my uterus, um, I had to have a hysterectomy. And um, what brought that on was, of course, the injury. And obviously, I'd already had my son. And um, so I had that in 2002. And then I was given hormone replacement therapy, which was a gel that I put on my upper arm every day. And as a result of that, I was diagnosed with HER2 positive breast cancer. Oh, my God. And I, I asked the OBGYN that also took the stand who did my rape um, case and, and the procedures and everything else. I said, do you think, he's now a professor, but do you think that the two are related? And he goes, most definitely. If you had never had that injury, which then led to a hysterectomy, which then led to hormone replacement therapy, which then led to um, a mastectomy. Um, yeah, no, it never would have happened. So not only do I have diabetes from the gunshot wound, I also had breast cancer as a result of all the surgeries and what have you, and then this drug, which obviously wasn't for me. And um, I'm 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 fine now. I um, I um, had um, reconstructive surgery um, at Women's College, but there's the end of like there's the catalyst to it all, and that's that's not the end of the story. But it's just another it's another heart wrenching journey that I had to experience. That I you know wouldn't if I had an enemy I wouldn't wish it on them and um you know the the years of chemo and the months and months and months of radiation and more chemo and you know it's just it's just something else to add to the story which is not a pleasant part of the story as well but that's my life and I think that's made me even stronger because I, I just figure, well, if I can get through the abduction and rape and shooting, I can get through breast cancer. And again, I basically did it on my own. My parents were there for me. My son was in grade eight at the time. Um, so he, you know, didn't really want to see me the way I was. But, um, yeah, so it's been, it's been quite a journey. And, um, you know, these, these two habitual criminals are living the life of Riley, as, as far as I can tell. I mean, yeah, sure, they're in a cell and they're, you know, whatever, allowed to go out and play basketball if they want. They get a steak dinner once a week. I know all of this from the DA's office. It's not like they were put on the chair. And that's one of the things the prosecutor said to his family to his family. It's like, he's, like, he's not, we're not killing him. We're not taking his life. We're just incarcerating him. And, uh, but, you know, they have, they have medical, like, medical and dental 
they have all that. I know in the states it, they spend forty thousand dollars on every inmate every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. and so now I'm wondering about your your present life uh, aside from all the uh, mental and physical complications. How do you feel about your life now? Have you managed to find any happiness? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm a very, very um, positive person. The glass is never half empty; it's always half full. Um, I rise above these things by the grace of God, in my opinion. Um, from my parents because of all of their support and all of their love and prayers. And I, I believe I'm here for a reason now, whereas before I didn't. And it wasn't until I had my son that I realized I was here for a reason. And then once he was off to university, then I had the, um, the pleasure of my, being my parents' caregivers and, and taking care of them until... Um, they passed. So now I'm trying to find a new reason why I'm here. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you will. Because it's one. difficult. It's difficult when you're isolating. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you, what do you do? You, uh, all my weddings have been canceled or postponed. I should say they're not canceled, but they're postponed because of social distancing. You can't have an event. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah, it's um, I'm doing I'm doing really well, but I also have to say that I I think this isolation is harder than anything else I've been through, because <laughs> I'm I like I'm a social person I like to get out and do things and staying cooped up inside is like you know driving us all kind of mad. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I want to I'm going to start a business and. It's defecating on my dreams right now, that's for sure. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's hard to open a recording studio if you're going to have to physically distance from everyone. So Opening up by, your, uh, opening up by yourself, basically. Well, oh, no, it, yeah, no, that's the thing, too, because I, yeah, I can't... I don't actually own the facility, so, yeah, I have to interact with people. So, yeah, that's the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the same with me for, like, interacting with the caterers, um, renting the tables, like, the linens, then going to buy the flowers. You know, you can't you can't walk into a, a cooler, a fridge, whatever you want to call them, and buy flowers when there's all, but when there's social distancing, because they're not huge. Yeah. And, 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 then, and, then, and then paying for them and having them wrapped. You know, it's not, I I know a lot of floral shops that have closed because of the virus, because there's just no way of getting the flowers in, because um, when you have a retail space, floral shop, the truck comes to your back door and you buy off the truck. Mm -hmm. So how do you get into the back of somebody's cooler truck when it's six feet? of social distancing. Yeah, so right. yeah, I mean that's that's been that's been um, cumbersome for me. But anyway, I'm I'm staying positive Morgan and um, I I may have felt like I battled World War Two, but I didn't. So I had my own battles, but 
there's nothing worse than thinking about the soldiers who um, did what they did for us in our country. Well, or also, uh, you know, I think a lot of women in your position would have ended up uh, becoming addicted to alcohol or drugs or any some other kind of self-destructive pursuit. Many of them would commit suicide. And considering that uh, you didn't follow any of those paths, you never even became addicted to pain medication, I think that says a lot about your resilience as, as well. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. I've, I've said this to my mom over and over and over again, had this happened to either of my sisters, they'd be in the corner in the fetal position for the rest of their lives because <laughs> they're not strong enough. And it's, well, it sounds almost like one of them may have been jealous that you were getting attention, you know, the one who was skeptical about it. Yep, we're bang on. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> you're, you're a good mind reader. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're very insightful. That's exactly what transpired. I was getting all the attention. And then once I conceived, oh my gosh, it was like, you know, explosive, the attention I was getting because this wasn't supposed to happen. And then she really got it. Like, she really got the green-eyed monster. Yeah, I I have a friend who had a stroke when she was 21 and and went blind and and uh, yeah, her sister was angry at her because uh, she wasn't the sister she could be anymore, and she's getting all this attention. So yeah, it's weird how people react to these situations. Yeah, my sister got angry because I never sat down and told her the entire story from start to finish. She only heard like blurbs. She didn't know exactly what transpired. And I thought to myself, "Wow, you have absolutely no compassion." If I want to tell you. I'd sit you down and I'd tell you. But after I heard that, I thought, no, she doesn't need to hear anything. Yeah. So I don't even—I don't even know if they knew. I went back to Dallas to testify. Oh yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because that one sister said to my mom, um, "What I find really sad is the two men that Laura incarcerated initially." that were not guilty. Um, the one guy, his mother passed while he was in jail, and she never got to know that he was innocent. And that really upset me. Oh, yeah. And I thought to myself, well, the onus isn't on me. I I didn't. You know, I, I was just there testifying. I didn't put him behind bars. The state of Texas did. Or the county of Dallas. I didn't. And she was mad at me for that. And she thought, she's a, oh, Laura's just disgusting. It's very narcissistic to make it all about her. Once again, Morgan, you're bang on. That's her middle name. So I'll let you go. Uh, Thank you very much for doing the interview. I'll send you an email once it's published. Okay, fabulous. All right, great. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Laura. You have a great day. You too. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. This is Morgan Rector. Bye for now.